0: And so you'll see, we, we um, just barely briefly mentioned this yesterday, that the um, epigraph for this course is Wallace Stevens's Money is a Kind of Poetry, um, which is an interesting um, idea. And um, hi, uh, what's your name? Jim. Okay. Um, and um, you'll also see, why don't we just quickly look at um, the last poem. So it's... Um, on um, the it's it's on what is marked as page four, um, by Kay Ryan, um, who's a contemporary poet. Do people know who she is? Uh, she was poet laureate of the United States maybe five or six years ago, um, and uh, a really interesting um, and uh, very compressed poet. Um, so does someone want to read it? Prue. I could tell.
1: Does it go, like, onto the back, too? just
0: that? It's just that one okay. short poem. I'm not asking you to read Old English. Don't worry. Okay.
1: Poetry is a kind of money whose value depends on upon reverses. It's not the paper. No, not
0: on. reverses. That's reverse. interesting. Yes. Well, There's an interesting you know. reverse of reverse. <laughs> reserve, rather.
1: Upon reserves. It's not the paper it's written on, or its self-announced denomination, but the bullion, sweated from the earth and hidden, which preserves its worth. Nobody knows how this works, and how can it? Why does something stacked in some secret bank or cabinet, some miser's trove, far back, lambent, and gloated over by its golem, make us so solemnly convinced of the transaction when Mandelstam says gold, even in translation?
0: Okay, thank you. Um, So it's, oh, do you need, Ian, do you need one of these? Yeah, I, here, I'll do it as a paper airplane. All right. It's probably less efficient this way, but mildly cooler? No? You don't think so? You guys, (laughs) you have to learn to say, yes, that's so cool. We're not worthy. I'm worried onward. No, yeah, this took longer than I imagined, gonna it and it's not going to get to you either. It's going to be one of those things, but oh, Aww. almost. All right. Worth it? Definitely. <laughs> yes. That's, a, that's, a, that's one notch up on your final grade that definitely there. Um, <laughs> now I need a copy. Here it is. Um, okay, so uh, obviously she's alluding in her title and um, in her first line to what? That we just looked at just before looking at her poem? Money is a kind of poetry, Money is a kind of poetry. yeah. So the Wallace Stevens line. Wallace Stevens is um, the greatest American poet of the 20th century. Um, have people heard of him? Do you know him? Um, so he's, uh, he will ma- it will make you happy to read him. Um, he's, he's really, really amazing. Um, he kept notes. Um, he was actually um, also, and by way of making a living, a, um, an insurance executive, um, a top-level executive at an insurance firm in Hartford, Connecticut. And um, he was actually kind of interesting in how um, he ran um, his division of the insurance business, which is there was mandatory retirement at 65 when he was working, but he decided to make what he was doing so complex that no one would be able to figure it out. And so they had to keep him on, which they then did till he died. Um, So he was um, both a poet and someone who was um, really intricate about um, the uses of financial instruments. and, but he really is the greatest American poet of the century, um, greater than Eliot or Pound, who were more famous in their day, although not that much more famous than he was. And he kept notes, um, which were published after his death, in which um, he's um, um, just saying things that, that are thoughts and... Um, occurrences and that should actually be tweeted, but no one is doing that. And one of those was that money is a kind of poetry. And that's an interesting thing to wonder what he meant by that. Saying poetry is a kind of money um, is, may, is not the same thing um, as saying money is a kind of poetry. Um, money is a kind of poetry might be what we're going to be thinking about throughout this class. Um, poetry is a kind of money is um, talking about something very specific about poetry, which she here defines. Um, so poetry is a kind of money whose value depends upon reserves. What does that mean? It's a metaphor. Um, the whole thing is a metaphor. So what does it mean to say that its value depends upon reserves? And you can take that as mean as applying either to poetry or to money. Ian. Well, in
1: terms of money, the. Dollar bill, like uh, just the piece of paper that's written on the ink, it's written on, is not worth one dollar. Its value is based on the fact that the United States government has a bunch of gold in a bunch of vaults and has told us that it is worth a dollar. So it's based on a combination of some hard money backing it up Mm -hmm. and faith in its value.
0: Yeah. So um, the hard, I think after you left yesterday, we talked about the fact that, that hard money no longer backs it up in um, most Western economies. Um, but it did. It used to. That's the way it worked. So when you talk about the Federal Reserve Bank, for example, um, everyone knows that term? Um, the reason it's called a reserve is that they are the ones who own um, or used to own the gold and silver, that the paper money was a check that the government was giving people um, payable on demand in silver. So the idea that, that um, so if you guys think about, um, yeah, you do know about checks. I asked you about this yesterday. Um, so Or IOUs. So imagine that you pay someone with a check. And um, what the check means is they can go to the bank, right, and they can get cash for it, where cash is what we think of as real money. Um, But cash is not real money. Cash is actually, or it used to be, um, now it's real money, but what it used to be was paper that entitled you to what really was real money which was either gold or silver. The question which it should be and um, um, whether you could um, have silver as a a monetary reserve or not, that's a long part of um, financial history, especially American history. Um, Do you guys know the cross of gold speech? Is this familiar to anyone? Um, What is it?
1: Um, uh, William Jennings Bryan, one of the populists at the turn of the century. gave a speech about how uh, the current system of the gold standard we were on the gold standard at the time was not working and not helping people who were like, especially not helping farmers and working class people and so that how we the populist movement wanted to introduce silver into the American economy and into the American vaults.
0: Right. So that silver as well as gold would be what would be valuable in itself and could be used for um or or the value of silver could be used for the payment of any debt. Um and so his speech was he he said we will say when he was running for president um, in 1896, um, you shall not crucify us upon a cross of gold. Um, gold, um, his, his financial theory was probably wrong, but the idea was gold was a lot rarer than silver, and therefore um, people without, any, um, without much money didn't have access to gold. But access to silver was, was much um, easier to get. And therefore, um, it wouldn't bankrupt the farmers and um, the the um, large majority of people who didn't have any money saved up. Um, so he um, was nominated for president. It was an electrifying speech. He was known as the great boy orator. He didn't win, which is why you haven't heard of him. Although, do you know the last thing that he did? Yeah. He
1: was involved in the skills
0: money trial. Yeah, he was... The, he was um, the prosecutor in the Scopes Monkey Trial, which was, everyone know what that is? So a uh, guy was teaching evolution in Tennessee in the 1920s, which was against the laws of Tennessee, and they weren't going to do anything about it, they, uh, they were just going to give him a slap on the wrist, but he demanded to be prosecuted um, because he wanted to um, um, establish that evolution was science and that it should be taught. And so it was a great trial, which has now become a play and a movie. The play and movie are both called Inherit the Wind. Um, The teacher was defended by Clarence Darrow, who's one of the great um, American lawyers of all time. And so he was the defense lawyer, and Bryant was the prosecutor. And um, so those are the two things he's most famous for. Um, So at any rate, the idea is, even now, that let's say you write someone a check um, and they could cash it um, and get cash that belonged to you, and it would now belong to them. But what if instead of cashing it, um, they um, went to someone else and said, I have a check from Ian, and I would like to buy your um, scooter, which is turns out to be just as much as this check says, so I'm going to sign the check over to you. And so you take the check, you still have, um, Ian has written me a check. Um, I haven't cashed the check, but I've signed the check over to you and gotten your scooter. You then take that check, and instead of cashing it, you decide to invest in one of those new marijuana shops. Um, So you give the um, owner of the shop the check and endorse it over to her. Um, And she doesn't cash the check but instead gives it to her supplier to get some marijuana. Um, And then the supplier doesn't cash the check, but comes to me and gives me the check back in exchange for um, the book of poems that I've just written, which um, she got high and thought was really deep when she saw a sample on Amazon and now um, wanted to buy a copy. So this whole thing could happen where the check circulates among a bunch of people and comes back to me whether I have money in the bank or not. So I may not have money. If anyone had tried to cash that check, it would have bounced. And the check is a promise that I have money to cover it. But I could have lied, and the check might have bounced. But in this case, it didn't matter because it came back to me. Um, and now it comes back to me, and I'm relieved that, that no one tried to cash it, and now I can rip it up. And so the check has behaved like money, even though there has been no money in the bank, no cash that the check could, in fact, have um, been exchanged for. So, does that make sense to people? An easier way of thinking this is you're playing poker. Um, and you're out of cash, so you buy some chips with a check, and you know it's going to bounce and these people are going to break your legs if they figure out that this hasn't happened. Um, but, you, but then you win, and then they give you the check back at the end of the evening. So the check has been a promise that there's cash behind it. The promise never had to be fulfilled because you get the check back and you rip it up. Um, so paper money is a promise, or used to be a promise, that there was gold or silver behind it. And that's what the reserve is. The federal government says, we have reserves of gold and silver. And if you bring this silver certificate to a federal reserve bank, they will give you that amount of silver. Um, so if you bring... a $10 silver certificate, they will give you $10 worth of silver. And people said, good, the Federal Reserve, um, we can trust them. They're the government, after all, and uh, the government never lies. So we can trust them to give us silver um, if we want it. And so the money was like a check. It was an um, entitlement to something of genuine value. Which was silver. So does that make sense to people? This is um, this. If this is a new idea, it can take a little while to wrap your mind around. And once you do, though, it makes sense. Then, so is there anyone? Is everyone um, up to speed so far? It's fine if you're not. Okay. So then, what banks realized um, early, early on, is that you didn't need as much silver in the bank, or as much gold in the bank as there were notes entitling you to silver and gold in circulation. So once people are saying, look here's a silver certificate, it's worth five dollars of silver um, people don't want to be carrying around five dollars worth of silver, that's a lot that's heavy. Um, And so instead they're carrying around this paper money which is convenient and no one is actually going to the bank to get the silver Now, by no one, I don't actually mean no one. But what I mean is the vast majority of people are fine just exchanging paper the way you would be exchanging a check with with your marijuana dealer and your poet friend. Um, So they're just exchanging paper, but the paper entitles them to get silver. So once in a while, um, let's say 20% of the time, someone actually decides they do want the silver. And they go to the bank, and they exchange the $5 for $5 worth of silver, and um, the bank takes the note and um, gives, gives up the silver, and it all works fine. And after a while, banks saw that 20% was really the most that anyone, the, the, the highest frequency that anyone ever, um, that, that, that people went to the banks to get silver. That is, if they um, had $100 worth of silver certificates circulating, um, only about $20 would be redeemed, and the rest of it would keep circulating. Um, You guys probably know that $100, or do you know about $100 bills as a kind of um, uh, cash? It's it's one of the major hard currencies in, in Russia, um, people would much rather be paid with $100 bills than um, with rubles or with any other kind of Russian money. Um, $100 bills are like a major, major, major currency all over the world um, for people who are doing anything even slightly shady. Um, hundred American um, um, Franklins are what people want. And um, there are a whole lot of counterfeit $100 bills out there. I think it's thought that there are more counterfeit hundred-dollar bills than real hundred-dollar bills that are circulating outside of the United States. In the U.S., they kind of get caught um, because everyone checks a hundred-dollar bill really carefully, and the Treasury is making them harder and harder to counterfeit. But outside of the U.S., um, there are a whole lot of them out there that are um, look really, really good to the naked eye. Um, No one cares if they're counterfeit because they are never used in the US. And so all that matters is that they are accepted as $100 bills. Um, and if they're accepted as $100 bills, um, then they're part of the currency. But at any rate, what, the, what, the, what governments found out, what banks found out, was that if you had $100 worth of currency going around, only about $20 of that 100 would be redeemed and the other $80 people would just use the currency, use the paper money, knowing that they could redeem it if they wanted to, but they nevertheless, um, knowing that they could redeem it was enough. They had, to use the technical term, faith and credit. That is, they had faith in and they credited the banks or ultimately the government Um, that they would give the money if they asked for it. And because they knew they would get the money if they asked for it, they 80% of the time didn't ask for it. So if you're the bank, how much money do you, how much real money, quote, real money, unquote, do you have to keep in your branches if you have $100 of um, demand notes circulating around? Are you going to have hundred dollars worth of silver? 20%. Why not? Sorry? You only need 20%. Yeah, and maybe you have a little bit of a buffer um, so that in case for some reason it's a it's a it's a, um, a busy day and a lot of people want silver, um, you can meet their demands if you have to. Um, so there's a limit. There's a minimum amount that you have to keep on hand, um, but it's not nearly as much as you have circulated. So suddenly, you if you're a bank and you have, let's say, $30 of silver, that's a sweet deal because if people believe that you'll pay them, you can print $100 worth of money on the basis of that $30 worth of silver, and now you've created $70 worth of money out of the air with a printing press or nowadays with a computer. Um, You've just created that money by promising to pay if anyone asks. And if they believe your promise, only 20% of them will ask. And um, you can pay the 20% who do ask. Um, So that should start seeming a little bit spooky. Where's this extra money coming from that's suddenly in circulation? Um, What does it mean for there to be this spooky extra money in circulation? Does that makes sense to people? Does it feel spooky to you? It should because it's um, how is it that a person can just suddenly take $30 and turn it into 100 only by writing checks and that $100 is real money it's not fake money because anyone who cashes the check will get their cash it's like a Ponzi scheme though everyone know what a Ponzi scheme is? what's a ponzi scheme for? It's
1: like a pyramid scheme, right? Yeah. Generally. Yeah. I mean, I only know it in like multi-level marketing schemes sense. But I don't know <laughs> how it applies to like a bank.
0: Okay. Necessarily. Well, necessarily. So a ponzi scheme is basically um, what you do is you are giving people um, um, entitlement to a certain amount of money whether they're stocks or in the original ponzi scheme postage stamps, rare postage stamps um, that are worth a bunch of money. And, um, what happens is that people, well, it is originally multi-level marketing, so what, but, but, um, occurring spontaneously. So, what happens is people um, say, Look, I bought um, this stamp for a dollar, and two days later I cashed it in for $2. That was amazing. And then my friend bought some stamps for $2, and two days later he cashed them in for $4. And what happens is people keep investing, keep buying stamps. Um, and whoever is cashing it in in the previous generation of stamp buyers, they're actually being paid by the investment that the next generation of stamp buyers is putting in to the stamps. So what happens is you have the pyramid is that um, I got paid, I got 100% return, that was amazing, Um, you should do it too. So you do it and you put in some money and then you tell a friend and your friend puts in some money, then you decide to take your money out and the money that you get is the money that your friend has put in. And each time, because more and more people are doing it, it's like a chain letter, but with money, because more and more people are doing it, um, there's always more money flowing in. And so anyone who cashes out is being um, paid by the money that's flowing in from the next level of people. The problem is that this increases exponentially. So if everyone is doubling their profits, um, what the person running the Ponzi scheme has to do is double the investors. So let's say your profits double every year if you invest. Um, That can only happen if the number of investors is doubling every year. So if you start with one investor, then after 10 years you have um, 512 investors and you're still fine. Um, After 20 years... You have, um, you have to have um, almost a million investors to still be fine. And if you're doing it by months instead of years, what that means is after three or four years, more people than there are in the world have to invest to keep the scheme going. Um, yeah? This is this assuming that everyone pays the same amount? Yeah, this is a very simple model that I'm giving you. Um, but it's assuming that everyone pays the same amount. But in fact, they wouldn't because um, each time the, the, pay, the payoff is higher, so the value of the, the notional value of the thing is higher. If you guys know who Bernard Madoff is, is this is a familiar name? So he ran a Ponzi scheme um, that put him $60 billion into the hole. Um, he, was, he was doing fine for about 20 years. Um, And then, as soon as he couldn't pay, the whole thing came crashing down. A lot of Brandeis buildings are Madoff money. Um, That is, um, earlier investors in Madoff who got paid. They thought it was an honest deal. They got paid. Um, Carl and Ruth Shapiro um, got paid by Madoff, um, but it turned out they were investing in a Ponzi scheme. Um, So if you go to the Shapiro Campus Center, Um, That's money that um, came to the donors through their investment in a Ponzi scheme in which they eventually crashed and burned. They didn't get their money back. Um, They were the generation that um, got screwed by Madoff. Um, So why is money not a Ponzi scheme is an important question, or why does it work when um, there is more value out there than anything to back that value up in gold and silver. That's an important economic question, um, why that's the case. But at any rate, to go back to Kate Ryan's um, poem, which might actually give you the start of an answer. So poetry is a kind of money whose value depends upon reserves. So we all understand what reserves are now in that. okay. why does that apply to poetry? How does the value of poetry depend upon reserves? What's your first guess? Yeah, i sorry, remind me your name? Andrea. Andrea. It's really
1: only valued by the reader, or like how much value the reader gives to it, or like the population as a whole gives to a poem. Otherwise, it could just be hilarious.
0: OK, nice. So um, one possibility would be to say, why does everyone think Shakespeare is so great? And the answer is? Because everyone else thinks he's great. Yeah, because everyone else thinks Shakespeare is so great. Um, So people think Shakespeare is great because other people think Shakespeare is great. And they take that on faith and credit. And then maybe they find that he's great um, because it might be that um, whoever people think is great, others will find um, a way of projecting into what they're reading, into what they're seeing. Um, and um, finding or making what they actually find um, or actually making what they find um, so yeah, that's one possibility um, it may be that what's characteristic about poems versus novels what's like the fir- how's the first way you can tell that you're reading a poem and not a novel Length, yeah, poetry is really short compared to novels. Um, and it also has ragged right-hand margins. Um, you never write justify poetry. Um, no, that's a really important thing. It's it's You can tell you're reading a poem or a cookbook if it has ragged margins. Um, and usually short lines, lines that don't go anywhere near the right-hand gutter of the page, as you can see here. Um, Okay, so what that means is, as is well known, um, that poetry um, uses very few words to try to convey what it's trying to convey. Um, And what that means is we have to do a whole lot of um, thinking, inquiring into, looking into what's in a poem, maybe projecting onto a poem. Um, so that the value of a poem depends upon reserves, might mean something like the poem is potential is enough words and enough powerful and interesting words to offer a place for you to interpret it um, in ways that make it make sense to you does that make does that make sense? it's I think um, what she's saying here and maybe it's just me thinking this but that would be the point um, that what she's suggesting here is that for any poem to be powerful to genuinely be powerful um, what it has to do is offer you a a kind of mirror of your own thinking Um, a mirror which maybe is a little bit um, more polished than most mirrors you look into or most surfaces you look at, um, but a place where you can see some connection with your own thought. So it, so that might be an example of what you're saying. That is, that it also depends on people finding a value that they actually project into it. Um, I think there's another related meaning of at least the word reserve. What does it mean for a person to be reserved? Yeah. To be held back. Um, Yeah. So so if 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 you hold something back um, for later, so um, you might reserve your um, your um, wing for the lat for for overtime in the World Cup game, um, or you might have reserves of troops for a war. Um, what does it mean metaphorically if you talk about a person being very reserved? Yeah. They hold back some of
1: themselves.
0: Yeah, they're guarded. They are um, not simply putting everything out there. Um, so we often think that poetry, which is just over the top, um, kind of um, as um, um, Captain Holt says in Brooklyn 9 9. Do you guys watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine? So there's one point where he says, "Look at me, you have me alliterating like a beatnik," um, which is the most passionate Holt ever gets. Um, so, but you know, there's a kind of poetry which just screams um, about the the depth and power and passion of the person who's screaming. That poetry does not age well. Um, but poetry which is reserved poetry in which um, the poet says as little as possible, but has to say something because of the great depth of feeling behind the restraint of the language. Um, that's a kind of poetry that we actually, to use an economic term, value highly. Um, does that make sense to people? Think of, think of um, um, Basho. Even in Kyoto, I miss Kyoto. Um, It's not quite the whole haiku, but almost all of it. Um, And um, if you find that great, which I do, um, it's because it gives you a whole world of nostalgia and a whole world of the impossibility of ever going home again so that even if you're in Kyoto, you can't be in Kyoto. You can only miss it. Um, So that's a very reserved poem. It's very few words, um, but says a lot. There's a great poem by um, um, the poet W.S. Merwin. Do people know him? Um, Wonderful, wonderful poet. He's now about 90. Um, But he has a poem called Elegy, and it's a one-line poem. Everyone know what an elegy is? What's an elegy?
1: Um, Isn't it like a...
0: It's a poem of mourning. So, an elegy is um, a poem expressing um, the experience of mourning the dead person by describing not their presence but their absence. So, Merwin has a poem called Elegy, and it's a single line long. And the line is Who would I show it to? And just think how great a loss that is. Who would I show it to? because the person he would show it to is dead. So that's a very reserved poem, where you can feel um, the sadness behind that reserve. Kay Ryan is a very reserved poet, um, so she's certainly making that claim. Poetry is a kind of money whose value depends upon reserves. Something behind the words that we know or can understand or can appreciate behind the words, but the words themselves are reserved. Um, You might maybe think of this as the beginning of a sad poem or as having sadness within it. It's not the paper it's written on. So what's the uh, famous uh, cliche that she's alluding to here? No, this yeah.
1: To say that something isn't worth the paper it's written on, meaning it's not worth like, like how much would a piece of paper be less than a cent?
0: Yeah, yeah, much less than a cent, I hope. But yeah, <coughs> so it's so it's it's a standard cliche when people say this check isn't worth the paper it's written on, or this coupon isn't worth the paper it's printed on is is the more common um, use of that cliche. Is that familiar to people when I say it? This X isn't worth the paper it's printed on. Um, all right, I bet you'll hear it a lot now Now <laughs> now that I've pointed it out um, So um, it's not the paper it's written on She's not saying it's not worth the paper it's written on But she's alluding to that, to that um, formulation It's not the paper it's printed on Or it's self-announced denomination uh, So what's a self-announced denomination? Yeah It's like
1: the number on a dollar
0: bill right the number on a dollar bill is one, the number on a $100 bill is 100. Quick, number on a $50 bill?
1: Good.
0: All right, you guys, you got it. Um, so a $1 bill, a $50 bill, a $100 bill, they're all worth the same paper. They're all the same amount of paper. Um, and the only thing that makes a $100 bill worth more than a $1 bill is its self-announced denomination. Um, so denom- you, you talk about when you go to the ATM um, And some, some ATMs will ask you What denominations you want your cash in right? So that means you want it in 5s and 20s Do you want 10s and so on um, But that's not um, um, what the money is It's not the paper it's written on And that's true about poetry also Poetry isn't the paper it's written on or it's self-announced denomination. Why isn't poetry? We know why money isn't, um, or, or um, real money is not the self-announced denomination of a, of a bill. Why isn't poetry a self-announced denomination? Yeah.
1: Um, the value of most works of art is determined by the audience, not by the writer. Like the movie The Room uh-huh. is one of the worst movies ever made but the, Tommy Wiseau thought it was going to win Best Picture yeah. because he loved it so much but, and was self-obsessed and weird but um, he but it's n- not good so it's just the value of works of art is not determined by the artist but by the audience
0: OK, so if I say something, if I, that's great. So if I write a poem that goes something like, like um, this is a poem, now don't go to sleep, because here I will show them that I'm really deep. I just made that up. <laughs> it's not bad for something I just made up, right? Right? It's really deep, isn't it? <laughs> like, so deep. That, at least, is the self-announced claim of the poem. Roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and I'm really deep. (laughs) Does that work for you? Is that a poem that in terrible times in your life you'll go back to and think, how deep, how very, very deep. It says it's deep, so it has to be. Um, so So you can't be a poet by just saying, I'm a poet, and I'm deep. So the self-announced denomination isn't going to be enough. It's not the paper, nor is it the overt claim, you could say. So that's true about money also. Um, But the bullion sweated from the earth and hidden, which preserves its worth. So what's bullion mean? Yeah.
1: I mean, in terms of money, it's the amount of Gold or children that hypothetically
0: tax it up. Yeah. Um, what is it not in terms of money? I like the fact that you said in terms of money. So what's the other possible meaning? Is there one?
1: Um, they're bullion cubes for seasoning. Yeah.
0: They're not actually for... you. We use them for seasoning, but that's not what they're there for. Why? They're there for making soup.
1: Yeah.
0: So bullion is basically... Um, dried um, herbs, spices and, um, and chicken or beef or pork or veggies. They're weird. I've always
1: thought they're weird. They are weird. And they come individually wrapped.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But bouillon originally just meant a very weak soup. Um, and so, and I believe it, it's from a French word meaning anyone know? Boiling. Um, it's the same root as English Boil. Um, and so it's, I believe that it, that calling gold and silver bullion has to do with how it's extracted, um, from ore, which is through boiling, that is heating it up until, um, gold and silver have lower, lower melting points, obviously, than rock, so you heat it up, and it starts bubbling up when it melts, and then you skim it off. Do you know if that's right? I think that's why the word bullion is bullion, when, when it refers to metal, um, So um, there is connection And the word sweat would um, indicate that connection Sweated from the earth Um, So um, the poet sweats in writing The earth is sweated, is heated up In order to produce gold and silver Um, And hidden, which preserves its worth um, so what makes the poem what it is, is what the poet is also hiding. And, but hiding in a way that we know the poet is hiding something, as we might know it right here, that the poet is hiding something. The OED agrees with you. It agrees with me. All right. <laughs> I'm so glad when they're right. Yes. <laughs> the, people know what the OED is? It's a, it's a really good resource, which you can get online at LTS. It's the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the greatest dictionary in the world in any language. Um, it took them like 75 years to do the first edition. Um, and it gives you etymologies, and also they try to give the first use of any word in English, the first time it appeared in English, at least in writing of any sort, Um, so you can trace back the heritage of any word. Um, It's really interesting that way. Oxford English Dictionary. Um, There are books written about the, the insanity of the people who put it together, um, literal insanity in one case. There was one guy who came up with a huge number of words in their first um, their first appearance, and the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary invited him to Oxford. He'd just been sending these things in for years, and the guy said, I can't come to Oxford. I'm in an insane asylum because I killed my friend um, in a fit of rage, but he was from Mars, so it was okay, um, or something, but um, anyhow, fascinating work. You should know about it. Um, so, but what she's saying here is there's something that she too is reserving what happens to the poem at this moment by the way yeah
1: starts asking questions
0: starts asking questions um, it also starts rhyming earth and worth um, you think that's you don't think she meant that Money and reserves, no. But then we might notice backwards that written on and denomination are technically um, will count as rhymes in older English poetry. Um, We now say denomination, but um, in 17th century poetry, would have been pronounced denomination, and it's actually a rhyme that you can find a lot in 17th century poetry. Then you get a clear rhyme sweated from the earth and hidden which preserves its worth. Nobody knows how this works. So we spent a class talking about how it works but we don't know how it works and how can it? So how can money work? How can poetry work? How can it? Why does something stacked in some se- <coughs> secret bank or cabinet um, some miser's trove far back, lambent, that is, um, sparkling, and gloated over by its golem, um, so the miser has all this money, which is shining and gloated over by its golem. What's a golem? Do you know? Sorry? Like the no, that's Gollum. <laughs> um, but yes, that would that would work. Yes, my precious. Um, it's close enough. And Gollum, I think, comes from Gollum. Yeah. You mean like a biblical sense? Yes. Like
1: fantasy
0: sense? No, in the biblical sense. In the
1: biblical sense, wasn't it like a Frankenstein-type monster? Yeah. Or something built from
0: Earth and whatnot? Yeah, um, that, that would crush and haunt you. and um, Basically a scary and uncanny monster. Um, so how can this thing gloat over by its Gollum? Um, make us so solemnly convinced of the transaction? So transaction goes back to denomination. Why do we believe that something has really happened to make us so solemnly convinced of the transaction when Mandelstam says gold? Do people know who Asip Mandelstam was? Familiar name to anyone? He's one of the great Russian poets of the 20th century, eventually executed by Stalin, um, friend of Akhmatova. And um, so the word gold is an English word. It's not a Russian word. But But it sounds like a Russian word, golod, which means hunger. So somehow there's a kind of alchemy here where hunger turns to gold. Do you hear gold, gloated, golem? All of those things are somehow coming together as though that's the currency. Um, This class is actually just about to end. You can sit down. Yeah, I'm just telling you this is the end of the previous class. Um, And um, all of those are going together. um, And then somehow we become convinced that this fits, convinced of the transaction when Mandelstam says gold, even in translation. So translation from Russian to English, but what other translation? From gold to currency? From the soul to the words on the paper? um, As though maybe poetry is a kind of money um, with reserves that it points to and that we think about but never get to. Okay, so that was supposed to be the first five minutes of this class last week. Um, or yesterday rather But I'm going to send you some stuff out Look at the two riddles Obviously you don't have to I gave you the old English version of them As well as a couple of translations um, If you haven't looked at them yet Look at them um, They're interesting And um, they are um, also argued about Yeah Yeah, so so this is... Um, each week, as the tangent syllabus says, and I'm going to put dates on it. Um, is the equivalent of three classes. So what a week means is three classes. Um, so you should start getting books soon. Um, and um, if you want to hold off for another couple of days, you can, because as I said yesterday, we're already way behind. Um, but um, I'll I'll give a um, a syllabus with dates uh, by this weekend. Okay. Congratulations. I haven't seen him yet. Are you-